Making Sense of the Digital Society A podcast with answers to the big questions of digitalization. For everyone who wants to be in the know about the many debates. But we are not only trying to make sense of the digital society, we are also demystifying some of its buzzwords. Making Sense of the Digital Society is also a series of live lectures in Berlin that I have moderated since early 2018. My name is Tobi Müller and I am the presenter of this podcast. We cover a wide range of questions, such as how do we want to actively shape a digital world? How can these processes be aligned with public interest? What kind of knowledge do we need for this? What are the underlying changes in society beyond the hype over new technological developments? What is power in the digital society and how is it distributed? Do services fueled by algorithms and artificial intelligence improve our lives or do they enforce social inequalities? And what role do cities play in this transformation like infrastructure and public goods? We combine summaries from the lecture series Making Sense of the Digital Society and conversations with international experts. You will hear renowned scientists talk about their research and discuss key issues. Their topics are diverse. Complex problems need attention from various disciplines in order to come closer to an understanding of the time we live in now and want to live in tomorrow. If we think about infrastructure, we usually think of physical infrastructure. Roads, municipal buildings, public transport. But there's also digital infrastructure, which is becoming increasingly crucial for society. Cities depend on invisible digital infrastructures such as server farms, fiber optic networks and automated traffic control that usually only become noticeable when they cease functioning. Stephen Graham is a British urbanist and geographer who works on the field of digital and technical infrastructure of cities and its role within the network society. As a professor of cities and society at Newcastle's University School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, he has an interdisciplinary background linking human geography, urbanism and the sociology of technology. Since the early 1990s, he developed critical perspectives addressing how cities are being transformed. In his work, he examines the veiled and unveiled infrastructures. The much-hyped smart cities promise to digitize the urban merging of the visible and the hidden infrastructural layers. But what happens if they fail? Can cities be smart and should they in the first place? What are the values embodied in these infrastructures? How do we make sure that cities in a digital society remain public spaces? How can they be designed to foster social benefits and not just commercial interests? These are some of the questions Stephen Graham covers in his talk called The Politics of Urban Digital Infrastructure, held in September 2018. The title of what I have to say is The Politics of Digital Infrastructure in Cities, okay? And I want to, I want to get you to think through what we mean by infrastructure, both in an urban context, a city of four or five million people like Berlin, but in a society where the digital is pervading everything where the digital is mediating every micro-aspect of every dimension of our lives. And this is a transformation that has come on um, in a profoundly rapid and unpredictable and sometimes bewildering way. 
So let's kick off with the obvious point that cities are and cities always have been the sort of key hubs of infrastructural society. We're going right back to the origins of cities. They are always the hubs that concentrate infrastructure that become possible through infrastructure. And in the latest transformations of digitized infrastructure and digital infrastructure, we're just seeing the, la the, the latest manifestation of a very old process. And in a way, infrastructures historically, in terms of modern cities, industrial cities, have been a way of making what geographers call nature into culture. They bring all of the resources, all of the uh, water, energy and food and communications into cities from all of the distant hinterlands that serve cities, often that's very contested and so on, and they, they move all of the things out of cities that we want to remove through the wastes and, and uh, outputs of the city. These can be in gas form, through pollution, they can be in water form, they can be in produced form, all of the products and services. So digital media are interfacing with big questions about who we are as people, our very bodies are caught in these webs of infrastructure. And these are webs of infrastructure that are often invisible. Without the infrastructure, we simply can't live. That's the bottom line. If you imagine Berlin without the vast array of um, food infrastructures, logistics infrastructures, energy, water, waste, as well as digital media, which allows all the rest to function these days, we would be in a state of massive crisis. You try living without electricity for a week, and you start to realize that the always-on, switched-on, infrastructural city is always, always linked to those flows. Historically, a lot of people like Marshall McLuhan thought the city was anachronistic, it was old-fashioned, it was going to be literally disinvented as people could do all of their communication remotely from wherever they wanted to live. So if you look at some of these quotes, Martin Pauli, an architect, says, uh, in urban terms, once time has become instantaneous, you can send anything anywhere, anytime, at light speed, space becomes unnecessary. There's almost a sense that we're going to inhabit cyberspace. And cyberspace was very much seen as a separate world in the, in the 80s and the 90s. Marshall McLuhan says the city is a form of major dimensions, and this is in 1964, must inevitably dissolve like the fading shot in a movie. So why has that not come to pass? We are now living in the most urbanized age in the history of our world, and it's the most digitized age in the history of our world. My argument is that's not a surprise. My argument is that digital media, digital technologies facilitate urbanization and relate really closely and subtly to the fact that we're all here today. If media was so fantastic, why would you all come here to see a face-to-face -face exposition of an argument? You know, place still matters and arguably matters as much as ever, despite the incredible growth of digital technologies. These new media, and this is going back to 1990s, this, this was deemed to be quite a revelation, given this weight of debate from North America that somehow cities were going out of fashion. What the uh, argument is, that far from going out of fashion, these digital media reanimate and reorganize places in ways that are so, so important and so hard to understand. 
because they're so political and yet so hidden. And I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. So let's just take some examples. Just think, I would say, of this humble device in your pocket. Think how the smartphone has remediated the camera, the video camera, the map, cartography, computer databases, the telephone, rather obviously, global navigation systems, and so on and so forth, global retail and shopping and logistics systems. Because that phone is a portal into a, an unknowably complex set of infrastructures that straddle the world. Every time you use the GPS on that system, you are connecting to 24 geostationary satellites owned by the US Air Force that are the same things used to drop bombs on targets in Afghanistan. Okay. Behind this front end is this vast backstage, the backstage of global information infrastructure. I want to move now on to the question of smart cities. It's a word that's everywhere, just as digital cities were or virtual communities were 20 years ago or cyberspace perhaps 25, 30 years ago or wired cities in the 1960s. There's a very long history um, to the idea of political and governance communities, uh, real estate organizations, place marketing organizations trying to sell their cities by making them look high-tech. Remember Berlin with its electricity infrastructures in the 1920s and 30s? Uh, the last 30 or 40 years, it's been profoundly about who's more digital and more futuristic, as we were hearing with Toby. And the smart city rhetoric is powerful at the moment. It's coming out of the, corp the IT corporations, it's coming out of the cities themselves and the real estate organizations and so on. And it builds on a whole set of debates um, that surround pervasive and ubiquitous computing and the way it's permeated everyday life in terms of bodies, buildings, cities, spaces, and infrastructures. Um, on the back of the Internet of Things, uh, ubiquitous computing, social media, the massive growth of uh, Google Earth and based cartography and navigation systems, um, and it's very much a sort of cybernetic idea that this time, despite all of the failures with previous information systems in cities, we will have perfect information. We will have perfect optimization. We will be able to control all of the complex systems that connect cities in terms of nature, ecology, infrastructure, services, government, and so on. What's very important, I think, given what Toby was saying about this urge to be futuristic, this urge to sell your city as a high-tech hub, as a center of digital innovation and so on, is it's about symbolic power, the symbolic power of the digital, but also the symbolic power of new physical landscapes. And the history of all of these projects is very much to sell the future. William Gibson famously said that the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Right? Now a lot of city agencies and developers are trying to say, we are here, we are the future. Dubai is fantastic at this. Dubai has actually employed um, futuristic sci-fi 
script editors and, and thinkers to say, how can we look like the future? The final point I want to say about the smart city idea is that it's asocial. It's a non-social view of the future. It's an entire technological, technocratic view of the future city, which I think gets the entire um, logic wrong. What we need are social visions of the future of cities, which start with all of the pressing uh, social political concerns, environmental concerns. Then, if digital media are, are part of the solution, that's fine. But uh, they're, they're trying to squeeze every aspect into this more data, more data. Adam Greenfield, who's done some really interesting critical work on smart cities, puts it this way. He says that smart, this is a quote, smart cities tend to be discussed casually as if it were self-evident that all one needed to do to finally solve the city, remember the IBM quote earlier on, is to weave sensors into the urban fabric by the million, trawl the relevant social networks for geotagged utterances and apply just the right analytical algorithms to the ever-mounting tally of tetrabytes captured this way. A lot of the smart city labs seem to be full of very, very bright people trying to do stuff just because the data's there, in other words, which I think is a, getting it entirely wrong. There are some much more interesting and challenging grassroots social activist platforms. There's a long history of those that I haven't got the expertise to go in, which start with the social. They start with human lives in place and then build from there. This is just one example, which is the work of Christian Nold in East London, who's actually started to tag people as they move around East London to see how stressed they are encountering the pollution and the danger of the various vehicles and highways around East London, with a way of mobilizing for environmental and social justice. So I hope this hasn't been a too grim and too paranoid sense of the the network and the digitization of, of urban space. What I hope I've given you a, a flavor of is the subtlety of how everyday encounters between people in places, the things that keep and always will keep cities going, is now so completely mediated in all sorts of ways by a new set of infrastructures. If we talk about smart cities, we talk about the infrastructures that surround us. Plus, we've all got smart products and are connected to the cloud. But does that make us members of a smart society? Is there such a thing as smart citizens? In the following interview, Christian Graufogel speaks with Marlene Sticker about the idea of the smart citizen. Marlene Sticker was founder of the Dutch institution De Digitale Stadt, the Digital City, which started in 1993 as the first virtual community introducing free public access to the Internet in Amsterdam. Marlene Sticker believes that society needs open technologies that come up to societal challenges. She therefore founded the Institute VAG in 1993. VAG is a future lab for technology and society in Amsterdam. Marlene Sticker and Christian Graufogel will now discuss digital participation and connectivity. They talk about Fab Labs, short for Fabrication Lab, a small workshop that offers personal digital fabrication, and how these types of grassroots opportunities should encourage us all to become smart citizens. So I actually wanted to talk today 
with you about digital cities and smart citizen. But I found out that beside all your work in this field, you invented the Fairphone. So I'm really curious, how did this happen? And how is this connected to your work in the digital city? Well, I think I didn't really invent it, the Fairphone. Uh, it was a research project in the Waag, in our organization. Bas van Abel was one of, uh, was head of our uh, creative team and was very much involved in open design and fab labs and maker culture. And I think it started by opening up a mobile phone, trying to figure out what's in it. And then we realized that there were a lot of problems with what's inside of uh, those gadgets and mobile phones, a lot of conflict minerals, child labor. Uh, you can't really repair. Uh, if you open a mobile phone, it's almost immediately kaput. <laughs> so the idea started for can we, can we change the, how a mobile phone is being produced? Uh, and this was also in the context of a project with people were worried about the conflict minerals in the Congo. So Bas and a team of the Waag went to the Congo to see what who was working in the mines to get coltan, for example, which is one of the minerals that we that you need to make tiny uh, gadgets and, and and mobile phones. And uh, yeah, from there it started as a an idea. Then we realized we should present it as let's make our own phone, as we do every with everything. We have this maker culture in the Waag, a hacker culture in the Waag. So we don't take the products and the world for what it is. We want to open it. We want to open the black box. So I think that's why Fairphone is totally in sync with the values and the ideas of the Waag. Um, but from there, it's it's spun off and it and now it's a separate company. Uh, 60, 70 people uh, and, well, quite successfully, both making a phone, a smartphone, but also still very much in the research mode to figure out what is the chain of production of this kind of technologies and still in a modus of creating open technologies. So to understand a bit better what you're working on, uh, with the VAR, you're promoting smart citizen or the, the term of smart citizens and you want to uh, educate and empower citizens also in sense of technology as you explained with a smartphone uh, with a, with a fair phone so what do you exactly mean by the term smart citizens and and what are you actually doing to empower citizens in a digital age well smart citizens You can see it from two sides. It's it's both coming from citizen science, from maker culture, from opening up the black box, uh, technology literacy. So citizens that are smart can also really participate in a democracy and have the ability and the knowledge to uh, to be an active partner in it. But it's also, of course, a reaction to the whole theme and frame of the smart city, where uh, the city is smart and the citizens are dumb. A lot of the smart city technologies tells us that the technology itself can run the city. Just put some sensors somewhere, uh, do some artificial intelligence, some deep learning, and every all the problems will vanish. And so just trust the technology. And I think for the Waag, we love technology, but we understand that technology is not neutral. So it's really depending on, on who is creating the technology. Technology is not neutral in the sense that there are instructions in it. If you use data, this is not objective. Every data set is an interpretation of the reality. Uh, so it means something about who is defining, who is defining where we're optimizing for. So for us, smart citizens is um, 
sort of a reaction to the smart city, but it's also in itself a program, a very positive program in bringing these technologies into the hands of social innovation and, and, and empowerment of uh, individual. So you're actually in the Bath Society training citizens to understand technology in a different way and to understand the processes behind or how are you actually doing this? The WAG is an institute with around 60 people on staff and another 100 on, on projects. So we can do a lot of projects, of course, so at the same time. So we do research, uh, we do public events, and we also have a regular program on citizen science where we work together with citizens on uh, how to uh, measure water quality, air quality. Uh, so these projects are always together with people in the city, sometimes in the Netherlands, sometimes uh, abroad. We do this also a lot in European collaboration. And yes, these are sessions there. Make Health, for example, is a program where we bring designers, citizens, people with uh, issues for, for because they, the wheelchair doesn't do what they want that the wheelchair should do, to help them to solve their own problems together with designers and some some hackers or other, other people with engineering skills. And this is a lot about bringing people together. We don't believe that anybody in itself, in her or his own right, can understand everything. That also counts for civil servants or even engineers or people from science. You need each other to understand the next steps. It's all very hybrid, uh, very interdisciplinary. On every average Thursday, we have an open day in the afternoon. People come in, use the Fab Lab. We have a big Fab Lab uh, at the Waag. We also have a big biotech lab at the Waag and a textile lab. So we have all the equipment for people to uh, to use. And next to that, we also do training sessions for teachers and for others that are in their profession, librarians, for example. We help the libraries in Amsterdam to become maker spaces. So we also teach the teachers and teach the librarians to become more maker-oriented. So yesterday we had an event at the HIC where you said not everybody should be able to code, but everybody should be able to understand what's behind it. And also regarding your approach of smart citizens, you're trying to promote that, that people actually understand that. But isn't that also quite a big task to ask from citizens to actually understand codes? People who have never experienced coding before to ask from them to actually understand the technology to be able to participate in a democracy. Isn't that also like shifting a bit the responsibility to the citizens and, and asking quite a lot from them? Because that's, that's nothing which I think we should take for granted. You can't expect people to just sit there in the afternoon or in the spare time and, and try to, to figure out how, how coding works. Well, I think if, if it's about what we teach in schools, I think I'm not so much for that everybody has to learn code or to code or programming, but I would love to see that we bring arts and technology together and more purpose-driven questions about environments and about how to understand your own environment. Um, and so this is more digital tinkering or creative tinkering, which is more maker culture. So I would love to see people have more ability to repair their own stuff and be less consumer and more producer or co-producer. But I totally agree with you that it won't be that every citizen will be able to uh, to understand the black box or what's inside or behind the technologies. This is only just one of the measures that we need to do to to educate and to open up 
the ability for people to learn and to participate. Uh, but we also need regulation. If you think about our food system, people, when they go into the supermarket, they don't have to check themselves if there's dioxin in the chicken because we have all kinds of regulations for this. Uh, so that, that should be the same for all the apps that we download. It should be totally normal that the parties that are putting these apps in the app store can't take your data away. And now this is not regulated good enough. So we need really fierce regulation so that even very, very, uh, so not only the happy view has the ability to understand and, uh, and choose for an alternative, but that it's just normal that this kind of technology apps and, and gadgets that they don't surveil us. It's really weird. I mean, they, they're not selling these uh, smart shoes. Uh, actually, they're being hacked. <laughs> so <laughs> and then you can't walk anymore. So you buy buy stuff. It's so strange. People buy the stuff to be, and then this technology turns against you. It's a very strange concept. I, and so we, we have to be uh, uh, protected to this kind of technology. So you would suggest that Analog to the red regulations we have in an analog world, in like if you look at consumer rights, that we somehow also adapt them in the digital sphere and have like the consumer rights we have in the analog world also uh, implement that in, of in course, a digital yeah. sphere. And at the moment, it's quite a strange time because on one hand, we have the GDPR, which is the privacy law coming from Europe, which has to be implemented in every nation state. And that's definitely a game changer. But we also have Article 13 now, which is protecting the rights of um, publishers, which is against consumer rights. So from Europe, it's a very strange situation that also PSD2, which uh, says that banks uh, have to share our bank information with third parties based on our consent. But we know how we give our consent. Like, oh, you give me a little bit discount. Oh, you have my consent. So the question is, if people give consent to third parties to do something with their data, is, is this real? Can we ask people to make that decision? So, yes, we, we need to regulate it, but it's, it will take us a lot of time, a lot of years to, to get it right. This is not an easy thing. There are so many different lobbies on European privacy legislation, but also on the rights of publishers, the telecom rights. So 25 years, we took it for granted. We approached the internet as a market and the market players would do right. And of course, we it's not right. It's uh, far from right. So it will take us at least 25 years, I hope faster, five years, to get back to a more commons-based internet, which public values and where not the market is uh, is in charge. So now you mentioned also data governance as an important aspect. Um, the question who actually governs the data which is produced uh, on a daily base. That's something you're also working on um, with a decode project, European funded project, uh, also in collaboration amongst others with the city of Barcelona. And what is happening in that project, as far as I know, or as far as I understood, is also that trying to develop more communal alternatives to existing platforms. And that's something also you, you promote yesterday in your talk that we need also, yeah, communal owned platforms beside the, the, the ones which already exist to actually have an alternative we can promote to citizens. But isn't that the paradox of platforms that if there's one existing platform running, that it's not 
really that easy, impossible to just set up your own thing and say, okay, well, we have another alternative, really good data governance model on these platform, which is really citizen centered. Now, please move all to this alternative, which is communal or state owned, but that actually if there's one big player in the platform that, that the people stay on it, like uh, there have been examples with like uh, Airbnb and co where, where people try to set up something else. I think that's also something you're doing with the Bach. Uh, and then you see that it's really difficult to move the people there, even if they see the direct benefit. Like how do you think we could tackle that question and, and how we could uh, deal with that problem? I've started the Facebook Liberation Army with uh, Geert Lovink and some others uh, in 2014. And we throw this party, uh, the Facebook uh, farewell party. And so people showed up, but a lot of people were very hesitant because they didn't know how to leave Facebook because it's their own, well, propaganda machine, for for example, or they have all their relationships there or they have all their family ties there. So it's quite difficult for people to leave uh, a social platform when they invested so much time in it. And on the same time, people start to feel very uh, in unease with these platforms. Uh, and people are much more open to alternatives than before. To me, the, the difference between 2014 with the starting point of the Facebook Liberation Army and then 2018, the GDPR, but also national television, uh, a show that from uh, Lubach, a very uh, popular uh, television host, who altogether said we are going to leave Facebook altogether with 300,000 uh, people. I think there is a big change. I think, of course, the first have to leave and then the others will follow as always. And we, we have seen this in the past as well. We see that young people don't go to Facebook at the moment. They're on Instagram. That's another problem. That's the same problem, uh, of course. Yeah, so yeah, I, I do see that it's problematic to get people to another platform. On the other hand, we also have to make it very easy. And at the moment, it's not that easy. So if you ask for alternative to Facebook or Instagram, it's difficult. I mean, there's not a real good alternative. If you think about an alternative to Google search, uh, I can say DuckDuckGo, StartPage. So there, there are many of them already. If you ask people uh, alternative to Google Mail or Gmail, I can say Proton Mail. So there, there at, for a lot of the the now existing uh, technologies, there are alternatives. Only for social media, it's more difficult. And I think we're very close to uh, a new generation of social media. And they will be very attractive and well-designed. And they will have all the public values that we want to have in it, which means attribute-based identity, which means distributed data storage. There are a lot of people also in Germany work on this. Uh, the project, that project is a protocol which we need for a new architecture for social media. Uh, but also a person like uh, Tim Berners-Lee with Solid. Tim Berners-Lee, the, the inventor of the web, is working on something which is more decentralized uh, as a framework. So yeah, I think we are getting closer to it. But so we need really good alternatives before people will move to something else. Coming back to the question of, of data governance a bit there in, in that field. So alternatives also would request a different model of, of data governance. And then also regarding your, your process of, of empowerment, I think people to also take the step of changing, people need to understand how data governance work and what's actually happening with the own data. But isn't that such a, as you explained before, isn't that such a complex 
theme to to understand and to get into it and and understand the process behind that it's really difficult to explain that and and break it down to the people on a daily basis so like how how can you promote empowerment by breaking down complex technological processes into a daily base i think sometimes it's being mystified that's very complex and you can't really understand that you really be you need to study ict or informatics or ai i think part of the the the, the narrative around technology is that it's being mystified and uh so de demystifying is also a very important uh aspect of our work uh, which says and you can simplify it so you can simplify it you make it more clear what are the rules and you have to bring it back to the stories do you want one central power to know everything about you or would you rather be in charge of your own information people now think it's inherent of the internet that you lose your privacy but it's not it's it's based on the business models of these companies so if we change that and we show that it's possible to have companies that don't make their business by profiling you by being paid to to mislead you and to to manipulate you then it's much easier so you don't not everybody has to understand in the technological uh, aspects of it but it's, it's also about what kind of company is this what is their purpose why are they there what are they doing so i think we more and more we get back to the normal stories line that we know like who is in charge where is the power is there any democratic uh, accountability to what the company is doing and at the moment people experience enough all these revelations about Cambridge Analytica and, and all the other stuff, what's happening at the moment. I think there's enough journalists working on these cases to make it clear. What is the, the values behind the big tech companies at the moment? And I mentioned, um, the book of, uh, Shoshana Zubov, the rise of uh, surveillance capitalism. Uh, also more like uh, scholars and researchers and professors are, are really doing good research on making it visible. And again, I think there, there's a group of people that have a moral obligation to make the right choices. These are politicians. These are people in policy making for healthcare organizations, educational organizations. They have to make the moral decisions with whom are they going to, to work together? Are you expecting your students to work with Gmail and Google Mail or Gmail and, and Google? Or will you choose for alternatives? Are you uh, paying Facebook for for your advertisement, or are you going to stop to do that? These are these are decisions. So I'm not saying that every single citizen should know about it, but I think there are some obligations to people that make policies, and they have to make the right choices there. So what would be your <laughs> future vision, your optimist vision for? A digital city. So where do you see the potential of technology on top of the societal base, which is needed, as I understood you, but where do you see the potential? Where could this lead as a, let's say, future imaginary? Where do you yeah. think the technology could bring us in a, in a positive way in the digital city? Like what is really needed? Well, I, th I think I'm, I'm the, my original enthusiasm for the internet in back in 92, 93, when I started to use it for some activities is that it can enable and empower people to to work together over time and over space. And we can share solutions and make it available to other people. We can create a common knowledge, 
common tools. So I think the, the commons potential of the internet still is the thing that drives me and makes me happy. And uh, I do see how it enables people to educate themselves or to find new relationships or to uh, build new uh, companies or organizations. The, the energy transition as we uh, is uh, since we have distributed technology, which on the background, the internet isn't distributed architecture where you can add a node to the network and then you have all the access. So it's, it is decentralized, which is very important and very disruptive in potential. So I think this, this potential is still there. It's also still working. So energy, an energy transition is possible as a distributed uh, process because we have the tools. The whole concept of the power of the, the factories and the power of 3D printing and personal fabrication. These are also two ways to think about how we, how we develop the products. So again, distributed knowledge, open design can help also to, uh, to become closer to our own, to be less consumer, more producer. So yeah, I, I do believe there's still a lot of, a lot to gain from, um, distributed open technologies. And, um, but we really have to fight and be very aware of the dangers that lies into the more centralized powers that in, that are in the platforms at the moment. From smart citizens to smart sustainability. Would you like to know more about how digitalization can do some good for the climate? Then you may want to listen to Tilman Zantarius and his lecture titled Making Digitalization Work for the Climate. He wonders if it is possible for us to witness a smart green world or are we heading toward a spreading digital capitalism? Santarius is a professor of social ecological transformation and sustainable digitalization at Technische Universität Berlin and at Einstein Center Digital Future. All materials mentioned in this podcast and a large number of other interesting resources can be found at hiig.de slash making minus sense and bpb.de slash digital society in one word. Making Sense of the Digital Society is a production of the Alexander von Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society and the Federal Agency for Civic Education. My name is Toby Müller and I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Editing and production, Christian Graufogel and Filine Janus. Executive producer, Christian Graufogel. Sound design and recording, Juri Bader.